and I'm looking out the window, and the full moon is just now coming up over the eastern mountains. The Continental Divide looks beautiful. So um, it is uh, it is a joyful evening. And um, with that, I will... Uh, usually I say, turn with me if you will. And I'm still going to say that, but I'm going to say it after I say some other things first, because we're going to talk about uh, a couple of different elements tonight. Uh, the regular Torah portion is uh, kind of on a hiatus. It will be... Um, the uh, the the final Torah portion in the uh, in the Scripture, and uh, I um, I appreciate the tradition. I think it's kind of an interesting tradition, which is to read the last portion and continue into Bereshit or Genesis to show that we never quit studying the Torah and that it does repeat. The cycles repeat. I like that concept, um, and we'll uh, we'll do that sometime over the next couple of weeks. Meanwhile, though, the traditional um, reading for the first night or the uh, the first day um, both of the Feast of Sukkot comes from Leviticus chapter 22 um, about um, verse well into the chapter essentially into chapter um, 23 and uh, through most of chapter 23 I'm going to read not all of that but part of that this evening I'm going to do some other things as well that I think are perhaps a bit more apropos too given what we know that the rabbis uh, generally would probably prefer to ignore and that is that this was the time of the, the birth of the uh, the real Mashiach during that season of joy. But if we start out, and, and what I'll do is I'll just kind of read a few of the verses in here so that I can get to some of the other elements, and you can probably guess where they're going to come from when we get there, that I want to talk about uh, this evening. So first, towards the end of chapter 22, um, You shall keep my commandments and do them, Ani Yahuwah. And you shall not profane my set-apart name, like, for example, by replacing it every time it shows up with something different. Uh, but I will be hallowed among the Benai Israel, Ani Yahuwah, who hallows you, and that brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your Elohim, Ani Yahuwah. And I think that's a great way to introduce the season, too, because he has commanded us to keep, to memorialize, to remember, to do the best we can to recognize these, uh, well, call them shadow pictures, Paul did, of these things that uh, were and are and are yet to come. So here we go. Chapter 23 says, Yehoshua spoke to Moshe, and he said the following, Speak unto the children of Israel, the Benai Israel, and say to them. Now listen to this. I've emphasized this many, many times, but as I've mentioned many, many times, he says it many, many times, and you got to figure it's important. The appointed seasons of Yahuwah. Notice these are not called Jewish feasts. Nowhere in Scripture is the proper translation that these are Jewish feasts, or Moedim, uh, appointed times. They are his. yod Hey vav Hey's. So here's how he says it. The appointed seasons of Yahuwah, which you shall proclaim to be holy provoca- uh, convocations, set apart times. Even these, he said, are my. The personal possessive form of the word. Appointed seasons. Moedi. So it's my. Moedi. Six days shall work be done. Okay, first one we're going to talk about Sabbath, obviously. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a solemn rest and a holy convocation. You shall do no manner of work. It is a Sabbath unto Yahuwah in all your dwellings. The next verse says, The appointed seasons of Yahuwah, these are 
even holy convocations, you shall proclaim in their appointed season. Now what happens next is that it goes through the list of the other six. So Sabbath is the first. There are three spring feasts, three fall feasts. As you know, it says in the first month, on the 14th day of the month at dusk, is the Passover, the Pesach, Le Yahuwah. And then we're going to describe the rest of the spring feasts. Uh, then it talks about the fall feasts and the things that are going to be done. What I'm going to do is to skip to the point uh, of where we are today. Uh, after the Day of Atonement, whoever is uh, not um, who does any work on that day shall be cut off from his people. I will destroy them, he says, so that's serious. You shall do no manner of work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Okay. And then it says this. This is verse 34 of chapter 23. Speak unto the Benai Israel. Say to them, on the 15th day of the seventh month. So, depending upon when you blew the shofar, that's either now, tonight, this evening, heading into tomorrow, or it could be tomorrow at sundown if you are the sighted new moon type. But regardless, it's this weekend by most reckonings of the calendar. There are a couple of, of exceptions. But essentially, most of the world is celebrating the uh, the time of Sukkot about now plus or minus a day. Of course, a lot of the uh, the Jewish uh, celebrations they go two days because they'll admit we're not quite sure. Anyway, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, it is the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot mangers, um, for seven days unto Yahuwah. On the first day, which is where we are, it shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no manner of servile work. So, no manner of work for hire, essentially, or work that is servile in nature. It's not quite as strong of a prohibition as it is for the Sabbath. Of course, this year, uh, they overlap here. Seven days, it says, you shall bring an offering made by fire unto Yahuwah. On the eighth day will be a holy convocation unto you. You bring an offering made by fire unto Yahuwah. It is a day of solemn assembly. Again, you shall do no manner of servile work. These, he says... To summarize it, are the appointed seasons, the Moedi of Yahuwah, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. That's what we're doing. We're reading it. We are proclaiming these are set apart unto him. I'm reading from Leviticus chapter 23. And uh, this is the latter part of the chapter at this point, verses 30 into the 40s. And you'll do these various things. Besides the Sabbath of Yahuwah, your gifts, your vows, all your free will offerings. How be it? On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, again, where we are now, when you've gathered in the fruits of the land, so it's the the feast that is representative of the harvest. Uh, those that understand a little bit about the history of Thanksgiving in this country recognize it, too, is associated with this time of the harvest. You shall keep the feast of Yehovah seven days. On the first day, solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you'll take the fruit of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of thick trees, willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice. Here is this word. This is going to appear, and it does, a number of places. Like I said, this is called the season of our joy, um, a time of joyful rejoicing, right? That word just appears over and over again. The Hebrew root word is a shem, uh, is uh, basically in, in English, the, the letters we would know as S M. Uh, chet, the uh, the chet sound. So uh, Sameach or Simcha are variations that we would use in uh, different conjugations. Either rejoice or be joyful. But the key is joy for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast unto Yahuwah seven days in the year. And here we go, folks. It is a statute forever in your generations. You shall keep it in the seventh month. And here's the other thing. This is important to uh, to think about. You shall dwell in booths 
seven days. The, the word in Hebrew, of course, for a booth, singular, is a sukkah, plural, sukkot. So tabernacles, booths, Old English, manger, might be a, uh, a similar concept. That's a temporary structure, uh, tent or a booth. Anyway, do this for seven days. All that are homeborn in Israel shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, Ani Yahuwah Eloheka. Now, I will point out, and we'll come back to this, because we're going to talk about several aspects of it, that uh, this idea of mangers or tabernacles or booths, temporary structures, uh, to remember what happened when the uh, Benai Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. Now, I've heard some rabbis ask this question. Hey, we, they were out there for 40 years. Why pick this particular season? Answer, I think we're seeing a lot of it. We're seeing some of the, the indications why it's important. There are some things that uh, uh, they will say happened during this time. And we'll, we'll certainly talk about one of them here in a minute. But um, it is, he says, so that your generations may know that I made the Benai Israel to dwell in booths. I, I can't help but think, given a certain symmetry, that we may, in fact, because these are shadow pictures of things to come, dwell in booths again. Uh, understand as well that there is the, uh, the idea of the... Um, uh, what do they call the little booth that uh, people get married in? Um, not a sukkah. A, um, I scared it out of myself, too. It's like sukkah. It's a, it's a similar word. Hupa. A hupa. And um, that uh, is a little temporary structure set up where the bride and groom uh, get married under. And uh, uh, that, of course, is another metaphor that we see associated with this time of the uh, uh, the fall feasts. The idea of a marriage feast. Yeshua says a lot about that. So a lot of, of symbols, shadow pictures, come together about now. Moses declared unto the Benai Israel the appointed seasons, the chapter says, and the conclusion of, of Yahuwah. So that is the, that is the Parsha out of uh, the book of Leviticus, and at least um, some of it. From there, what I want to do is go to a place that everybody's heard. Uh, they're, um, they're usually going to hear this around... Christmas time. And, of course, the trouble is that's wrong for a lot of reasons. We'll talk about some of those in a couple of minutes. As we go through this, I think it'll become clear. But this is uh, the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1. You've heard it. Everybody remembers hearing Linus read it in A Snoopy Christmas and, and so forth. Uh, and uh, it's very uh, it's very moving. A Charlie Brown Christmas. Okay, sorry. Um, and there were in those days shepherds watching over their flocks by night, right? Remember that. But let's start a little bit earlier, because what I want to point out are a couple things. One, nowhere in this book does it ever, ever say, not once, that Yeshua was born in the middle of December, uh, well, in the middle of the winter, uh, literally on the um, the solstice, shortest day of the year, or shortly thereafter, December the 25th, or even for that matter in the month of December. Not once does it ever even imply such. matter of fact, it implies something very different. So people will say, well, why does it matter? I will suggest that it matters because of the reasons that we're going to see, and that we've already seen. This is the season of our joy. As I go through some of the reading, which is going to come now from the book of Luke, think about that word joy. Notice how often it appears. Okay, inasmuch... As many have taken a hand in order to set a narrative of the things which have been fulfilled among us, writes uh, Luke, uh, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, seemed good to me too, basically to write some things down for you. So here we go. There was, it says in verse 5 of chapter 1, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, a certain priest, his name, Zacharias, 
Now, listen to this, and um, when we read this, we tend to kind of just gloss over certain things that are, in this case, repeated twice in here. There will be a reason. must be important. If we want to know, if, if it's important that we know what season he was born in, here is the clue. It's a far better clue than anything we're going to get uh, having to do with Mithra's birthday or other fake pagan gods in the middle of December. Or end of December. Okay, this this uh, priest named Zacharias of the division or the course, the old English says, of Abaya or Abiya or Abijah, you'll see in some English translations. Abiya, my father, uh, Yah. Hmm, okay. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They're both righteous before Yahuwah, walking in all the commandments, uh, commandments and ordinances of Yahuwah blamelessly. So they basically kept his instruction. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they were old, well advanced in years. Hey, that's a story we've kind of heard before, isn't it? So it was, while he was serving as a Kohen, a priest, before Elohim, in the order of his division. Now let's pause. So it's told us twice now who his division is, and that now he is in fact serving in the course of that division. So if we go back and if we look at um, at the other parts of the book, First Chronicles in chapter twenty four, we'll see that there's a listing there, and it says, "Here are these orders of these various priestly lines or courses." And it turns out that um, this this line or course or division of Abiyah or Abijah was in fact the eighth. So it's a fairly straightforward matter to say, okay, each of these served for their period of time in the uh, temple, and here is, uh, we're told, uh, Zacharias doing his duty in the temple, and it fell according to the custom of the priesthood. His lot fell, time to burn incense. He went into the temple of Yahuwah. And the whole multitude of the people were praying uh, outside at the hour of incense. So a malak, a messenger, an angel of Yahuwah appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So here's Zacharias of the course of Abiyah doing his appointed time in the temple, and something happens. This angel comes. Fear fell upon him. angel says, right, fear not, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You shall call his name Yohanan, John. Well, okay, what are we talking about? This is going to be the fellow that is in English-wise known as John the Baptizer or John the Immerser. Listen to what it says. Here's another clue. Verse 14, chapter 1 of Luke. And you shall have Simca, joy and gladness, and many will <clears throat> rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of Yahuwah, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Sounds kind of like what Samson was, uh, a Nazarite. We're not told that explicitly. But he will be filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the Benai Israel to Yahuwah their El. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Eliyahu, Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready a people prepared for um, Adon, the uh, the coming of the Master. And Zechariah said to the angel, well, how do I know this? Because I'm an old dude. I'm an old man. My wife is well advanced in years. Well, he says, uh, the angel says, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of Elohim. I was sent to speak to you so that you will know these glad tidings. But you're going to be mute. You'll be able to say anything about it for a while. And so uh, let's let's um, let's leave it and, and cut to the place where we can see how does that relate to this current season. So 
It says, now, this is verse 26 of chapter 1 of Luke, now in the sixth month, so um, here's Elizabeth, after three days after he gets home, his wife Elizabeth conceived. So he comes home, he can't speak, but he's managed to, uh, <laughs> he manages to do what the, uh, the angel has told him he needs to do, and uh, Elizabeth, his wife, conceived. And she hid herself for five months, saying, Yehua has dealt well with me the days which he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So now we get to the sixth month. So she is six months pregnant. The angel uh, Gabriel was sent by Yahuwah to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Yosef of the house of David. Virgin's name, we know it, right? Mary. So having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice! There it is again. That keeps showing up. That word rejoice. Highly favored one. Rejoice. Yahuwah is with you. Blessed are you among women. She saw him. She was troubled. What kind of greeting is this? And don't be afraid. Fear not. Right? There it is again, Mary. For you have found favor with Yahuwah, with Elohim. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name. Let's fix this because the English is, is not what it says. You shall call his name Yahushua, the salvation of Yah. Literally, his job title is his name. And that's important, you would think, since that is what he is. He is to come to save his people. says that in the other Gospels as well. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And Yahuwah Eloheka will give him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Yaakov forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Well, how will this be, says Mary, since I've not known a man? In other words, I, uh, I have not, in fact, done anything that would allow that to happen. Then the Malak answered and said to her, The Ruach HaKodesh will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of Elohim. And indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. So now we're seeing the connection. This is going to give us the timing. Elizabeth has has conceived. She is in the sixth month. Uh, and she was called barren. How amazing is that? For with Elohim, nothing will be impossible. Mary says, Behold, the maidservant of Yahuwah, let it be to me according to your word. And the Malach departed from her. Now, Mary arose in those days. She went to the hill country with haste to a city of Judah, entered the house of Zacharias, and she greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb. So, John the Baptist, a little babe in her womb, leaps in the sixth month. Elizabeth was filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, and she spoke with a loud voice, and she said, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb, ready? Here it is again, for joy, for Simca. Blessed is she who has believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from Yahuwah. And Mary said, My soul magnifies Yahuwah, and my spirit has recognized, has rejoiced, there it is again, in Elohim, my Savior. Notice this Savior concept, the name of the babe keeps appearing. Elohim, my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, and behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. So, Mary remained with her for about three months, it says, and then she returned to her house. So when the time came for Elizabeth to be delivered, she brought forth a son. Neighbors saw it, and uh, they showed mercy, uh, that, that Yahuwah had shown mercy to her, they saw, and they rejoiced with her. So they circumcised him on the eighth day, and uh, they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias, but uh, nope, his mother answered and said, he shall be called Yohanan, uh, in English, John. No one among your relatives is called by this name, but um, hey, uh, let's see how uh, his father would have it done. So they made signs to his father. What would he have him called? And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote on it, saying, His name is Yohanan. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, praising Elohim. Then the fear came on all of those who dwelt around them, and all the sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept this in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of Yahuwah was with him. So uh, an amazing setup. Uh, Again, what we see here essentially is we know the timing of the birth of John the Baptist. Turns out that this was at Pesach, Passover. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Um, John is the the precursor. He is born at Pesach, and of course Yeshua is going to do his um, his major, in, in fact, completion task at uh, the last Pesach, his life on earth. So his father prophesied, saying, "Blessed is Yahuwah Eloheka of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness, in Torah obedience, Zadikness, before him all the days of our lives. Now, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the face of Yahuwah to prepare the way. Prepare ye the way of Yahuwah. To give knowledge, ready, of his salvation, to his people. That's why I contend that the name is important. His name means salvation of Yah. By the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our Elohim, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet. His Torah, the Torah made flesh, right, is a lamp unto our feet into the way of shalom, of peace. So the child grew, became strong in spirit, and was in the deserts until the day of his manifestation to Israel. Now, meanwhile, chapter 2 returns to uh, what's going on with Mary. came to pass in those days. Now, we've heard this. Just remember, this was not in December. And uh, let me ask it as a question, I guess. Um, if if you were the uh, the emperor of Rome, and you knew that you had, uh, and you had some some good advisors, and you knew that all of the men of the land were going to come to the city where Yah has put His name on three feasts of the year, this Feast of Ascension, one of which was coming up. You say, hey, wouldn't it make sense? Wouldn't that be a great time to send my uh, censors down there and and do the census? 
take the take the count, the registration, while everybody is going to be there. I'll, I'll do a lot better job. It'll be a lot easier. They're not going to come travel anyway, and I'm going to have to send out all kinds of armies, and, and it'll be a real mess unless I do it at this particular time. It makes perfect sense, in other words, regardless of the other timings, that this decree would take place at the time of a uh, one of the appointed times, the Feast of Ascension. So we know, therefore, that it has to be either Pesach or it has to be um, the time of uh, Shavuot or Pentecost, the 50th day after that week, or it has to be this time, the time of Sukkot. Now, John the Baptist was born at Pesach. We add six months to that. Oh, that tells us what time it is. Here we go. came to pass in those days, those days, these days, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered. That census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph, too, he comes up from the Galilee to the city of Nazareth into Judea, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, city of David, which is called Bethlehem, the house of bread, uh, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, his Isha, who was, in fact, with child. So it came to pass that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. I'll make one other observation. Now, this is not one of those things you can prove from Scripture, uh, unless you just understand that the Creator is consistent, His character is consistent. He does all things according to His schedule, His timing. He knew the end from the beginning. It's all worked out perfectly. Makes sense to me that the time when Mary would be delivered would be according to his appointed times, especially if he's been prophesying about them, laying the groundwork and making it clear, preparing the way for yod heh and his salvation since, uh, literally, Genesis chapter 3 or before. So, it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. So she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a sukkah. Well, it says a manger. Um, what what it was all over? I mean, think about it, folks. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, if you've ever seen it, there would have been sukkot, sukkahs, booths, um, mangers, tabernacles, all over the place. Because there was no room for them in the inn. Why? Because there were a whole lot of people, not only coming for the registration, more importantly, they were coming there for the fall feasts. So all of this fits, makes perfect sense. Now, there were in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. What does that tell us? wasn't the dead of winter, when they wouldn't have been out watching over the flocks by night. It was now, when it's particularly nice, and they were out watching over their flocks by night. Behold, a malach, a messenger, an angel of Yehud stood before them, and the glory of Yehud shone around them, and they were sore afraid. And then the malach said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good tidings of, say it with me, folks, great joy, Simka, which will be to all people. It's kind of like it's the season of our joy, isn't it? For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Yeshua HaMashiach, and his name literally means the salvation of Yah. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a sukkah. Suddenly there were, with the Malach, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to Elohim in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So when the Malach, the Malachim, the angels, plural, had gone away from them into uh, Hashemayim, the shepherds then said to one another, Wow, let's go on up to Bethlehem, Bethlehem, and see this thing that's come to pass, which Yahuwah has made known to us. 
So they came with haste. They found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, uh, they made it widely known, the saying which they were told concerning the coming of the Messiah. And all those who heard it marveled at these things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her own lev, her heart. While shepherds returned, glorifying and praising Elohim for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told him. Now there's one other thing I'll, I'll read, just one more verse, because uh, I always think it's kind of interesting, and this is how we, uh, as opposed to the, the general time frame, right, that he was born during the time of the fall feasts, almost certainly during the time of Sukkot, this is one more clue. Last verse I'll read is from uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 21. When the eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, he was called Yahushua, the salvation of Yah, the name given to him by the Malach before he was conceived in the womb, and he was, in fact, circumcised on the eighth day. So it, it's um, there's a certain symmetry here, right? First day, a time of uh, rest, no servile work, a holy convocation, the birth. Eighth day, he gets his name, his title, Yahushua, the circumcision, a sign that he is of Yah, and it's the completion of the Feast of Tabernacles on the eighth day all fits. And it says this, now, uh, when the days of the purification were completed according to the Torah of Moshe, they brought him to Jerusalem, presented him to Yahuwah, as it is written in the Torah of Yahuwah, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy, set apart to Yahuwah, and afterwards a sacrifice according to what is said in the Torah is a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So uh, that is what is, by the way, specified if they're not of great wealth. So uh, they did all of those things that were in accord with the instruction of the Creator. So with that, I will say um, that's uh, that's where we'll pause with the readings at this point. I want to make one or two more observations, I guess. Because and by the way, if there's questions or comments, um, I'll, I'll mention both of these questions or comments. You can put them on the screen. And if you're listening to a podcast later, uh, Mark at MarkNywat.com will always work. I, I enjoy getting the feedback. And uh, the emails, I'm certainly always happy to answer questions. So it's mark, M-A-R-K, at marknywat.com. But um, as you probably suspect, there are a whole number of articles that have been written making it clear he was not born during the time of uh, the birth of uh, Sol Invictus Mithras. And in fact, was born at the time of Sukkot. Difficult would have been to travel at all during December. And uh, you'd think that any, uh, any any emperor worth his salt would know, come on, if you're going to do this, you're going to have people that you're you're trying to get to travel in the month of December. That's tough. You're, you're demanding people come. That's tough. It ain't going to happen. So let's do it at the time when it is, is appropriate, when you know they're going to be there anyway. And the Sukkot, the Sukkot's, the Sukkot, plural, would have uh, literally dotted the landscape. Okay. Um, rains might have been out there making it difficult to be in the fields during December. Anyway, we know about the uh, the course of Abiyah, and um, I guess a lot of the stories will emphasize what I think is key, and that's part of the reason why I love some of the the music and the uh, the idea of a joy to the world. Uh, Luke 10, he, the coming of Yahuwah, will be great Simcha to all people. Sukkot was already by then well known as the season of our joy, Simcha Sameach. And what would be more joyful than the promised Mashiach being born and tabernacling among us, as in fact was foretold during that very season? So Sukkot is simply a perfect time for the birth of the Messiah anyway. And um, 
Hebrews 9.11, as noted, speaks of Yeshua being even a more perfect sukkah, more perfect tabernacle. And uh, certainly the uh, celebration here, the remembrance, the whole concept of the sukkah anyway is that it celebrates Elohim dwelling among us. That shows the messianic uh, significance. Now, this is a little bit of history. Again, I don't know that we can prove it. Certainly can't prove it from Scripture, uh, as far as I'm aware, although I know that it is well accepted by the rabbis and the, the sages, that when Solomon built the first temple, it was dedicated on Sukkot. That was a time when the Shekinah glory of Elohim descended upon it, and Elohim came to dwell with man visibly in the temple on the day that Elohim himself set aside to mark his dwelling with mankind, 1 Kings chapter 8. So that is one of many reasons, again, additional witnesses, if you will, that we can determine from the scriptures and other records, uh, independent of scripture, that Yeshua was born this time of year. Okay, uh, let's see. I'm trying to think if there's anything else here. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've already mentioned this, but uh, I guess it's probably a great way to kind of wrap things up and summarize it. Um, Yeshua has more, more than I can count, probably, uh, told us parables, instructions, um, pictures having to do with the wedding feast. A perfect completion to the festival, the time, the uh, the moed of Sukkot itself. Another reason why we honor and recognize the time period and the appointed times of Yah. Because they point to Yahushua, the salvation of Yah, literally, and his plan for precisely that. Sukkot represents the wedding feast of Yeshua himself. Remember, he tells the story of the ten virgins, five of whom were ready to be joined with uh, the Master. It is, in fact... A season of joy. And I like to ask the question, I hear people say, well, really, does it matter? Well, if it doesn't matter, why do we celebrate it in conjunction with a pagan fake, uh, fake festival, right? It doesn't matter, why don't, we, uh, why don't we celebrate it when it probably happened? Because everybody that pays attention knows it couldn't have happened in December. So to the question, uh, why do we care? What's wrong with celebrating at Christmas? Well, I would answer, why don't we just get it right? Because as one of those who uh, you know heard so much and recognized that there were a lot of things I was told. I, I remember being told, and it really irritated me, oh, you just have to take it on faith. It doesn't have to make logical sense. Well, you know what? If it's logically contradictory, it destroys, it weakens, it is an enemy of our faith. Because, in fact, he is not contradictory. If we see contradictions in his word, guess who's wrong? It's not him. So that's why I say it's important. Why not get it right? And uh, that's what we're asking. That's why I think it's important. I encourage folks, think about it, pray about it, and uh, recognize that this is the season of our joy. And it is vital that we, uh, if we're going to talk about it, if we're going to celebrate his birth, why not get it right? I'll say uh, up front this morning, not only a good morning, Boker Tov, Shabbat Shalom, welcome back, but Hag Sameach, because this is, by at least some reckonings, uh, in fact, the the major uh, Hillel uh, Jewish calendar 
uh, diaspora calendar reckoning. This is the first day of the Feast of Sukkot, arguably the most joyful time of the year. It is, in fact, called the season of our joy. And um, by the uh, the sighted new moon, um, it would be tomorrow. But regardless, uh, this weekend, it looks like, by most calendars, is the uh, the beginning of the uh, the final week of the fall feast. And that's a, that's a good thing. It is also, and I spent some time talking about this last night. I suspect most people uh, listening here regularly are aware of it. This is almost certainly the real day, the actual day of the birth of the one who uh, was said to be the salvation of Yah, Yahushua. His literally uh, uh, job title is, in fact, his name. It was the angel that uh, was the name that the Malak, the angel, said to give him, and so forth. So, uh, I think what's fascinating about this is there is so much in the Scripture that uh, tells us so much about these feasts. I guess you could say, in a way, it's a real shame that the whore church and those who have tried to turn their back on what he said to do forever throughout your generations, these are my feasts, keep them, um, are missing out on so much. And instead, we've got these pagan replacements. So it's not my goal today to so much talk about the pagan uh, replacements as it is just to say, hey, there are some perfectly good reasons, including the fact that he says so, that we should keep his feasts. And... Um, uh, later on, I'll play, uh, I'll play some other recordings and some, uh, some information that I hope will fill in some of the gaps. But I want to start this way because this, this question has been in my mind a lot lately. People ask, well, well, what's wrong with Christmas? Well, besides the fact that it's pagan. And in places like Jeremiah 10 and so forth, we see that the, the various uh, uh, so-called traditions associated with it are not only offensive to him, he hates them. But I know that it's offensive to some people to say that it's uh, what it is which is outright pagan. So I'm going to just ask it as a, in a different way. Um, if we know, in fact, that he was not born in December, and that's easy to show because shepherds weren't out watching over their flocks by night in December, there is absolutely nowhere, and I mean nowhere in the Bible, people will read from Luke 1, I read from it last night, and uh, they'll say, see, this is the Christmas story. Well, no, it's not. Nowhere in there, not once, anywhere in there, does it tell us that it has anything to do with December or the winter solstice, or the birthday of the great sun god Mithras, uh, Sol Invictus Mithras, or any of that uh, pagan BS. But honestly, again, that that tends to offend folks. Oh, how dare you say you don't love Christmas? Uh, Because isn't this a wonderful... Well, you know what? Why not get it right? If we really say we're serious about celebrating the birth of the Messiah, well, it doesn't matter when we celebrate it. Well, then why not pick some date that's not pagan? Why, why would you pick a date that is a pagan sun god birthday to celebrate it on? Don't you think that might be a problem? You could pick any date. What are the odds, right? It's, it's so many fake gods were born on December the 25th. So let me say it again. Why not get it right? And um, that's kind of where I want to start because ultimately, if you look at uh, what Paul says in Colossians, these are shadow pictures of things to come. The Mashiach uh, was probably born on this day, the first day of Sukkot. But um, just as importantly, the creator of the universe himself says over and over again, these are my feasts, my appointed times, mine, they're not Jewish. Nowhere in the actual decent translation of the Hebrew does it say these are Jewish feasts. It says they're my feasts. And in the uh, Torah portion that we saw just a few weeks back uh, in Deuteronomy, among a number of places where he talks about his, uh, his feasts, um, he says this. This is towards the end of chapter 16. 
Three times a year shall all of the males in the land appear before Yahuwahurel in the place which he shall choose. So these, as you know, are called the Feasts of Ascension. There are three of them. One is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, associated with Pesach, the Passover. The second is the Feast of Weeks, the 50th day, Shavuot. Some would say Pentecost, but I like the Hebrew better, as you know. And finally, this one. The time of Sukkot, a.k.a. Tabernacles, a.k.a. the season of our joy. And um, you might even say it's the the, um, the Feast of Mangers, okay? <laughs> because there were a lot of people that were dwelling in these temporary structures called Sukkot. A, a singular version of that word is one Sukkah, multiple Sukkot. Feast of Tabernacles. There are the Feasts of Ascension because these are the times when it says, in uh, among other places, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, Three times a year your males will go up and they will appear. Well, as we know, that is in fact when the uh, the emperor of Rome issued the decree that all would go to be registered, get their names taken, uh, have a census, if you will, and of course going to take some uh, some taxation associated with that. All the good stuff that uh, Big Brother always wants to know where its uh, slaves are. But wouldn't it make sense to do it? Yeah, obviously at a time when you know those people are going to be there anyway, during the Feast of Ascension. And it says, um, you shall not appear before Yahuwah empty-handed. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. And um, this last one, the one that we're talking about now, occurs just a couple of verses earlier where we get the um, the description of it. it. says, remember you were bondmen in Egypt. You'll keep the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, seven days after you've gathered in from your threshing floor and from your wine press. It's, it's a feast of, of gathering and associated with the harvest. And as you know, uh, Thanksgiving comes from that. And here's one of many, many places where we get this uh, root word here, Simcha, Sameach. You shall rejoice in this feast, your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, all that are within your gates. Seven days you shall keep a feast unto Yehuel in the place which Yehuel shall choose, because Yehuel shall bless you in all your increase and in all the works of your hands, and you shall be, I love this one, you shall be altogether joyful. Smeach. Uh, so I'll say it again. How many times do we have to see it? We can see it over and over again in Luke too. This is a time of good tidings of great joy. You can't have it be more clear than that uh, with all this reference to joyfulness. So I'll ask it again. Why not get it right? Because after all, if we're going to be joyful, doesn't it make sense that we would get it right for the right reasons? Now, um, there's one other thing that's kind of fascinating about this. Yeshua was probably born on the first day. We just know he was born during the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. Uh, but I tend to think, given the symmetry, the hand of our Creator, the fact that he is perfectly capable of getting the timing precisely correct according to his plan, that's why I don't think he'd pick a pagan sun god birthday, well, he was probably born on the first day, and then um, the eighth day is an important day. That's the final day of the feast. That would depend on the time when he would have been circumcised. And Paul says it's a shadow. These are shadows of things to come. They're also a remembrance of things past. So he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We can look at this feast of Sukkot and say, well, uh, why not get it right? Yeah, they, the people of the mixed multitude of Israel, Spent those 40 years in the wilderness. Now, during those 40 years in the wilderness, there were, you know, 40 different sets of four seasons that they went through. So all kinds of choices for when the Creator could have done these various things. 
I think it's uh, it's fascinating too. In, in the book of Samuel, we see that the uh, the time isn't precisely given, just like the time of his birth isn't precisely given. But we have enough information to figure it out. The uh, the sages say that the time where the um, the ruach hakodesh, the Holy Spirit, indwelt Solomon's temple, was during this same time frame that he came to. Are you ready for this? Tabernacle among us during that time. So again, all the pieces fit. Uh, why not get it right? Well, there's one other element about this. We got things past, way past in the desert, uh, more recent past, but still 2,000 years ago when he was born on this day, and then we have um, things that we're going through now and looking forward to. We know the wedding feast is yet to come. The wedding feast is symbolized by Sukkot. Uh, much about that as well. If that's a shadow picture of things to come, if in fact he fulfilled the first time around. Uh, with his uh, death and burial and uh, three days and three nights in the tomb and then the resurrection. That would have been the spring feast. Uh, All of it makes sense to say we're looking for the fulfillment of the fall feasts, a shadow of things to come. So I want to ask some questions today. And this is where I want to, I want to kind of pause and say, here we are, beginning of this, uh, this final week of the fall feast. We see the birth of the Mashiach. So much about that is uh, truly joyful. And um, I guess one other thing I'll point out, if you look at Numbers 29, I, I could read through it. I hadn't intended to today, but Numbers 29, verses 12 to 16, also describe this feast of Sukkot. In particular, all of the animals that are going to be um, sacrificed or that will... Uh, will on each given day will be barbecued if you will uh so it's like a great big barbecue huh do you see the pattern a uh, great big barbecue for for 8 days it does sound kind of like a major feast right so much about this that uh, is a shadow picture of things past things uh, more recent past and the things to come let's take a look and see what it is we can learn from it i think that's that's one of the real keys uh, there are uh, elements of revelation as well that um, you'll hear pointed to. There are two readings that from uh, Revelation are associated with this particular uh, holy day. These are these are some of the uh, the messianic traditions, if you will. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna at least point to them. We'll we'll talk about them, see if it makes sense. Some of them obviously haven't happened yet, and I don't know that they're explicitly associated with Sukkot per se, although the reading is so. Um, Take it with a grain of salt. But here we go. One of them, chapter 7, has to do with something we've all heard about, the sealed of Israel. After these things, says Yohanan, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, in the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another Malach messenger angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living Elohim. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our Elohim on their foreheads. So I heard the number of those who were sealed. And we know this number, right? 144,000. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of the Benai Israel, the children of Israel, were sealed. And we're going to get about uh, five verses or so of the listing of each of them. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Tribe of Reuben, tribe of Gad, tribe of Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, and so forth. It's interesting, when you see these um, these listings of the 12 tribes, I always think it's fascinating to see. In this case, uh, Levi is listed. Often Levi is not, because he doesn't go to battle. So if Levi is in there, and look, Joseph is in here. Sometimes we see Ephraim and Manasseh that are listed. But in this case, it says... Um, 
It says Joseph. Hmm. Benjamin is listed. Who's missing? Well, fascinating. Think about it. Pray about it. And just understand that uh, there's always something here. The, the missing tribe that is not included in this list is Dan. After these things I looked, it says, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. Palm branches in their hands. Okay, well, maybe... Maybe that's where we get this reference. I, I'm sure that, uh, in fact, that would be one of the places where you would see the um, um, the messianic rabbis, if you will, say, "Yep, this is this is it. This has got to do with the uh, the four species." That's why it shows up with Sukkot. I'll come back to that, and we'll we'll look briefly at that verse in a second here. But it says uh, they were all crying out with a loud voice, saying, uh, "Yeshua." Salvation belongs to our Elohim, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And the angels stood around the throne with the elders, the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne. They worshipped Elohim, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our Elohim forever and ever. Amen. And um, what uh, what comes up next is one of the elders answers and asks this question. Um, who are these arrayed in white robes? Why did they and where did they come from? Well, I said to him, says the writer here, Sir, you know. These, he said to me, are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them, will tabernacle among them. Kind of like what happened at this season. So we can see that there are, in fact, several references in here. Uh, where I will uh, say, I take it with a grain of salt, the connection is we do not necessarily know that the timing associated with these uh, these 12 tribes of 12,000 each that are being sealed is associated with Sukkot. Just the fact that there are some references in here to the Lamb and to the... Um, sits on the throne and the joy and, and those things and tabernacling among us in particular, well, that certainly looks like uh, this time of uh, when he came the first time to tabernacle. Well, actually, not the first time, but one of several times, I guess you could add, to tabernacle among us. And it says this, the uh, last verse I'll read here, For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to fountains of living waters, and Elohim will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I guess that's another indication of uh, maybe even a bittersweet time of joy. After this great tribulation, he will wipe away every tear, and what we have is be joyful. Okay, from there, let's take a quick peek back at Leviticus, and this is chapter 23, verse 40, and it's a reference, and I haven't spent a lot of time talking about this, uh, but I do want to make uh, one comment on it today as we're thinking about uh, not just why not get it right, but um, this is a shadow picture of things to come, we should understand these things. If we go through the motions on Sukkot, uh, among the other um, feasts of yod heh vav uh, I, um, I have come to believe and understand and see firsthand that there are things we will learn. That's a blessing. We will begin to see uh, what might happen, what things might look like. In other words, when it finally does happen, we're um, better able to recognize it as opposed to, hey, that caught me off guard. Didn't even have a clue it was anything like that. I thought it was going to be associated with a, with a guy in a red suit, right? Riding a sleigh with a tree. No. Okay, verse 40 says this. Well, let's start with verse 39, because that's where we're going to introduce the time. Uh, How be it? It says, on the 15th day of the seventh month. Well, there you go. 
That's uh, either today or tomorrow, depending upon when the new moon was sighted. When you have gathered in the fruits of the land. So, yeah, it's a harvest time. You shall keep the feast of Yahuwah for seven days. On the first day will be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. Now, here comes the verse. As you know, the rabbis will talk about the four fruits. There's a lot about this. If you've seen the movies, seen people talking about the etrog and all kinds of rabbinic stuff about how the etrog is definitely the, the fruit that's uh, referred to here. Um, I don't know that that is quite as um, as obvious as that they say it is. I've, I've seen the, the demonstrations and so forth. Oh, okay, possibly. But when I read this this year, I'll admit... I am tempted to spiritualize just a bit. Let's see if that doesn't make some sense as well. You shall take you on the first day, that would be right now, the fruit of goodly trees. Let's pause there. There's there's three other species that are mentioned, two or three other things. But the fruit of goodly trees. Now, when I read this, and when I think in the context of something that the rabbis generally don't, and that would be the birth of the Mashiach, and this season of our joy, and all the references to be joyful and joy to the world and so forth, Maybe that's why they don't see it. I can't help but think the fruit of goodly trees, fruit of goodly trees. Well, what is probably one of the most famous metaphors that we see Yeshua use? More than once. A good tree brings forth good fruit. What was it we just finished reading in Revelation? All these uh, 12,000 of each of 12 tribes that are sealed. All those people who have been delivered have had their their garments washed, their robes washed literally in the blood of the Lamb uh, after this great tribulation, something yet to come. Could you argue that those are the fruit of goodly trees? By, um, by their fruit you shall know them. Uh, how's this for? By their fruit you shall know them, right? On that day, it says... That would be right now, right? The day of his birth, the day of Sukkot, day one. You shall take on that first day the fruit of goodly trees. Okay. Well, either you see the metaphor at this point or you don't. I I can't help but see it, I don't think. Uh, Along with other things here, it says, the branches of palm trees, the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook. So we've got some other references to other kinds of trees. And as you know, the, uh, the the verse that we just looked at in Revelation mentioned uh, the um, waving of palm trees, palm branches. And what does it say? Oh, we knew this. You shall rejoice before Yahuwah Yerel seven days. And you shall keep this as a feast unto Yahuwah seven days in the year. Oh, guess what? It shall be a statute forever. Ha'olam. Throughout your generations, you shall keep it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths, Sukkot, seven days. All that are homeborn in Israel shall dwell in booths, so that your generations may know, your generations may know, that I made the Benai Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. And here he signs it. The signature line, we've gotten used to see him. Ani Yahuwah Elohechem. I am Yahuwah, your El. Is there anything about dwelling in booze that might be a reference to things past, things present, and things things future? Um, uh, again, this is one of those places where I can't prove it. Um, I'll wax into a bit of what I sometimes refer to as markology. You don't have to connect the dots the way I do. But um, I certainly do tend to see, I've mentioned it many times, uh, bookends within Scripture. Atbash, Aleph, Tav, Beit, Sheen. Uh, sets of nested brackets where he says, here's a concept, and here's the same concept repeated in Scripture, the same exact words. In the middle is something important that what is bracketed is almost like a uh, like an HTML uh, tag. 
flag, right? Uh, I call it uh, like a bright flashing sign. Well, in the case of the brackets that are represented by the ten plagues of Mitraim and the um, the first Exodus, and we know because Moshe Shea talks about it, all the prophets eventually uh, mention it, and we see it, this greater Exodus yet to come. Well, there's an open bracket there. We have not yet seen the closed bracket to it. Is um, is what we just read in Revelation, is that part of it? Is this idea of the fruit of goodly trees, does does that begin to be part of it? Uh, in other words, is it possible that, that we are in not only the, the brackets, but we may see the closing brackets? Let me read that last verse again and see if this doesn't help answer the question. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths. He made it in the past. Are we going to do it again? Is that one of the things? And I uh, obviously suggest that it just might be. One of the things that we're practicing for when we uh, look to this time of staying in a tent or in a temporary structure or recognizing that uh, we are sojourners in a land that's not our own yet, but we will, in fact, be regathered at some point, all of that points to it. And if I uh, think about this time of joyfulness and the wedding feast and so forth where the... uh, the brides, plural. Remember, there were five brides that had oil in their lamps out of uh, out of the ten virgins, but five of them went to be with the bridegroom. They're probably going to go dwell in a new place after that, aren't they? Ani Yahuwah Elohechem. The um, the chapter here that I'm looking at in uh, in Deuteronomy in this case uh, closes with this declaration. It says, "And Moshe declared to the Bani Israel the Moedi, the appointed seasons." Of Yahuwah. So one more time we get this reference. They're my feasts. They're not Jewish feasts. Nothing wrong with the fact that Jews keep them or some of us keep them that aren't Jews or that at least are members of other tribes or whatever the case may be. But we should recognize who it is that wrote it, who said it, and whose feasts we're keeping. They're his. They're the feasts of yod heh They're his shadow picture. And um, our goal, among other things, is to uh, not only be ready but understand See these as the shadow pictures that they are. And I ask the questions, what can we learn from them? What should we be learning from them? So that's uh, that's a prayer. I'll, I'll just make it a prayer right now. And, and if you will join me, Father, that during this season of your appointed times, that we would know the things that you have for us to see and understand associated with trying to walk in obedience to your commandment to keep your feast of Sukkot these seven days, to understand all the things that are past, that are present, and that are future that you have for us to recognize and to be ready for on that score. Now, I've got one more place here that I uh, started to go to, but we didn't. I didn't finish the reading from Revelation. Uh, The second one that is listed is in chapter 21. Now, this one we talk about frequently, and um, I look at this and I think, yeah, this is nice. Uh, Would it be that it would happen soon? Honestly, it looks to me like we got a long ways to go before we get there. But regardless, chapter 21 is the one where it says, uh, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no more sea. So we're, we're not there yet. Then I saw Yohanan. Uh, then I, Yohanan, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Ready? Here we go. This is why the connection's obvious. Behold, the sukkah, the tabernacle, the mishkan. Remember, he came to dwell among us, to tabernacle among us. The tabernacle of Elohim is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And he himself will be with them, and he will be their Elohim. And then what does it say? Oh, yeah. 
And Elohim will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Then there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he says, he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I will make, I make, current tense, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Uh, Again, a future reference. But um, there is another reference in here which is also future. It certainly is also one that people will see and understand is associated with Sukkot because it's one of the few places, I mean one of the very few places actually, where um, if you have a knowledgeable sun god day keeping Christian who thinks that Jesus was born in uh, uh, Mithra's birthday in December, they will sometimes say, well, you know, uh, those feasts, those are all done away with. And then you ask them, well, what about that one? Well, some of them will actually know this. This is in Zechariah chapter 14, and it's clearly about as close to a proof text as you're going to find, uh, other than Yeshua himself saying over and over again, I'm not changing it. I didn't change one yet or tittle, not doing away with it. Heaven and earth haven't passed yet. Well, this one's pretty clear. This is Zechariah chapter 14, and uh, it too looks like a future event. It too, like what we saw in Revelation, looks like it follows something which is pretty nasty, and part of the reason why I think we're not there yet. It says, Behold, the day of Yahuwah is coming, the uh, great and awesome, the fearful day of the Lord, you've heard it called. But um, it is a day when no flesh looks like it survive, except uh, that he would protect it. And it says this, Behold, the day of Yahuwah is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city will be taken. The houses rifled, all the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then Yahoo will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain will move towards the north, half towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley. From the mountain valley you'll reach to Atzal. Yep, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then Yahuwah Elohi will come, and all you saints with you. And that one's capitalized here. And um, it says there's a difference in the Septuagint. No surprise there. But in any case, um, it's with somebody. Or is it with the one who was uh, come to tabernacle among us this time? That seems to be the implication of the translators, regardless. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It will be one day, which is known to Yahuwah, neither day or night, but at evening time it shall happen. It will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters will flow from Yerushalayim, half toward the eastern sea, half toward the western sea. Both summer and winter it shall occur, and Yahuwah shall be king over all of the earth. And in that day it shall be... Now, this is interesting. The Hebrew is is key here. Yahuwah is one. Yahuwah Eloheinu, Yahuwah Echad. Literally, that's the same terminology that's used here from uh, Shema Israel. Yahuwah Echad. Okay, now, as you know, Echad can be a number. I like to think of it as a unity because it says he is a unity. Of course, he is... That's the point of the Shema. He is a unity. And his name also is a unity. And all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to um, Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. 
and it'll be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate, the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will dwell in it, and no longer will there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem at this point, it says, shall be safely inhabited. And here is the plague. Now this is where uh, this leads up to, and I think it's kind of fascinating, and obviously it's another indication that yep, not all things have been fulfilled. I don't believe this happened in 70 A.D. and so forth. Uh, we're not there yet. Thus, this plague shall be fulfilled. This is the plague which Yahuwah will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. See if this doesn't sound like something that we go, hmm, this uncomfortably we could be closer to than we know. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Now, I can think of two modern bioweapons, folks, or bioweapons or uh, radioactive weapons of mass destruction. Obviously, one would be a thermonuclear weapon that would cause something that certainly could be described like we just heard. I guess the other one, and maybe you can thank uh, the Fauci's and uh, uh, other um, bioweapon terrorists of the world for this one, Ebola-like, Marburg-like, bioweapon-enhanced, gain-of-function-like terror weapons. Yeah, um, think of a, um, a flesh-eating uh, viral bacteria combo, some kind of uh, enhanced mRNA thing. You know, let your minds, you don't have to actually uh, uh, go that far off of what we can already see in order to think, oh, if they've been doing all these wonderful things that can, can destroy people's lungs and give them strokes and heart attacks, why not have their flesh dissolve, their eyes dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues dissolve in their mouths? We've already got flesh-eating bacteria that will do that almost All right, verse 13 says, It'll come to pass in that day that a great panic, gee, I guess we can see why that might be, from Yahuwah will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor, raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. In other words, they're going to go out and fight each other. That's also easy to believe, isn't it? Judah will also fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together. Gold, silver, and apparel, probably designer bags and footwear, in abundance. Such shall also be the plague on the horse, the camel, the mule, and the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in those camps. That's what this plague will be. Now, it shall come to pass. This is the part where I I started the chapter by saying, yeah, um, even uh, those in um, much of Christianity will look at this and scratch their heads and go, hey, I thought all these feasts were done away with. It will come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year, to worship the king, Yahuwah Zevuot, and keep, what? The feast of Sukkot, of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahuwah Zevuot, well, on them there will be no rain. The family of Egypt won't come up and enter in. They don't have any rain. They'll receive the plague with which Yahuwah strikes the nations that do not come up to keep the feast of Sukkot, of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep, here he says it again, the feast of tabernacles, of Sukkot. So several times in just a few verses, he emphasizes this particular feast is a really big deal. Folks, there is a season of our joy that we're in. Something that we're supposed to keep. I think part of the reason we're supposed to keep it now is so we can recognize this is coming, and when it comes, we want to be on the right team. 
And after it's over, I guess you might say that there's uh, some survivors that are going to be a little bit bitter, and they might not come up and uh, and celebrate this time of the wedding feast that they weren't invited into anyway, because Yeshua told them they weren't going to be. They didn't pay attention. But in that day it says, Kadosh le Yahuwah. Kadosh le Yahuwah. Remember the words? Those were put on the golden headband that was on first Aaron, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. But it says here, it looks like it's broader than that. In that day, Kadosh le Yahuwah, holiness unto Yahuwah, shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in Yahuwah's house shall be like bowls before the altar. Yep, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness, set apart, Kadosh, unto Yahuwah Zevuot. Everyone who sacrifices shall come in and take them and cook in them. And in that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of Yahuwah Zevuot. Now, as I read this, and I'm thinking about the prophet and... um, where we are in this this time that is future. Remember one of the things that was supposed to happen? Joshua was charged with doing this. The uh, people, the mixed multitude, coal Israel was supposed to enter the land. Israel never did reach the boundaries that they were promised. Still to this day, even during the time of greatest extent, during David and then later Solomon, never ever got to the actual boundaries that were prophesied. And by the way, they never finished cleansing the land. There were all these pagans, Hittites, Perizzites, Amorites, so forth and so on, all the mosquito bites, as the late Brad Scott used to say, and um, Canaanites, essentially is the broader term, uh, specifically the people in Canaan, but the entire land. They could have been called these other tribal names, but also Canaanites. Well, it says here, in that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite, not a one of them, in the house of Yahuwah Zebuot. So I guess if there's anything about this that would kind of seal the deal and help us to understand, this is definitely something future that we are looking forward to. That would certainly be it. Now, I ask it, and I I emphasize that because I look at the land today, and not the land that we were promised, but the land that many of us are in, Okay, the the new world. Uh, We have listeners, obviously, that are in uh, uh, England and in Scotland and in other places in Europe and in Asia and occasionally down under and so forth. But um, regardless... We're not in the land, we're in different lands, and um, arguably there are Canaanites, pagans, not only in all of them, but probably outnumbering all the rest of us, by vast majorities in many cases. You can see uh, you can see that anywhere you look. There's this, this huge um, swath of paganism that's out there. So here's another proof text that we are talking about a time future, and something that is uh, definitely worth paying attention to. So let me ask this again. What I want to do next is um, just take a couple of... Um, uh, this is not going to be as, um, I won't say edifying, uh, certainly not as joyful sounding as some of the things we have been talking about. But I want to look at some of the things that are in the news uh, during this season of our joy. And why do we talk about negative things? Well, because look up, because your redemption draweth nigh. In other words, the more we see the things that he says will come to pass have to come to pass, and the end is not yet, right? Matthew chapter 24, and I've read that so many times, I'm tempted to look at it again today, but we don't need to. Just remember, do not be deceived and recognize that there's going to be all kinds of nastiness coming down, so much so in the way of deception that even the elect might be deceived who it was going on. Um, a lot of things, in other words, that you can't help but think are going on right now. But here are some things just in the last few days that are um, maybe not surprising to us, but worth thinking about as we ask the question, 
Why not get it right? What are we looking at during the season when we're trying to get it right in the way of shadows of things to come? What are the kind of things we're going to have to see, deal with, and be not afeard of as we go through them? Well, here's one. This comes from... uh, uh, Patricia Herity at ExposeNews.com, and it says, Researchers, I've seen this before, but this is a nice summary uh, with uh, some uh, some medical citations and so forth. I have developed, what else? Now, we know that they're sticking it into vegetables, and they're bioengineering lettuces and other things so that they can um, inject you. No, don't have to inject you. Get you to eat this crap and modify your DNA, whether you like it or not. Because the goal, right, to destroy people. Now, I'm going to suggest, remember, uh, don't be too afraid of this. Just take this with um, the understanding that we are supposed to be aware. Know the times and the seasons where my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We, we need to have the knowledge so that we're not destroyed. But we have to do some things about it. Well, here's one that we're going to have to definitely understand and take action against. Researchers have developed an airborne mRNA Supposed vaccine. What's a vaccine? It's a way of modifying your DNA. This is a software delivery vehicle, folks. Uh, when it's when it's in a computer, you call it a virus, right? You put this computer virus in your computer, and it takes over your computer, changes its operating system. Well, that's what the Zyklon B poison poke uh, not vaccine does. It modifies people's DNA and turns them into little spike protein factors. So for that matter, as uh, as Moderna's uh, executive, one of them put it uh, a couple of years back, we are literally injecting an operating system platform into people. We're turning people into little computers. We've got a back door into the operating system. Ha ha! We got one up on the God of the universe who designed them. But now they've made it airborne. This airborne mRNA vaccine offers a vehicle, it says, which will allow people to rapidly be vaccinated. The masses will be uh, have it stuck to them without their knowledge or consent. A team from Yale University has developed their new airborne method of delivering mRNA right to your lungs. It's been used already to violate mice intranasally. Quote, Opening the door for human testing in the near future. Yeah, when, whenever you hear in the near future, that means you've already been done to it, whether you know it or not. While scientists may celebrate this invention as a convenient method to vaccinate large populations, there are obvious concerns about the potential misuse, gee, do you think? Including the possibility of covert bioenhancements. Get this. They call it a bioenhancement when they F up. That's a proper term here, folks. When they foobar, you're your own God-given DNA that you were created in his image. You know, the, the bad guy, Hasatan, the adversary, never has liked that. He's always wanted to mess with that. And here now they'll be able to do it um, through the back door. Covert bioenhancements. Okay, uh, for those that are nerdy, they're using polymer nanoparticles uh, to encapsulate nRNA, making it inhalable for delivery to the lungs. The ability to deliver efficient mRNA to the lung would have applications for vaccine development, gene therapy, and more, it says. And uh, they had this problem that they couldn't do it with um, the limited evidence of toxicity that they needed. How about that? Limited evidence of toxicity. In other words, if they uh, you know, put it to you and you die, just keel over dead, oops, that's what you call obvious evidence of toxicity. Unless you're CNN, MSNBC, in which case you say, nope, nothing to see here, move along. Limited evidence of toxicity. If you're going to kill people, it needs to be subtle. If they start keeling over right away, uh, like right after they take the shot, see, only a few do that, most of them might linger for a while before they die. That's better. 
All right, there is a lot more in this piece. It's multiple pages. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go through the whole thing, but basically uh, they've they've shown here said the researchers that they can deliver different kinds of mRNA, so it's not just good for vaccines, but also for gene replacement therapies. And we're able to, quote, radically change the way people are vaccinated, making it easier to vaccinate people in remote areas, those who are afraid of needles, or those who are especially difficult if the individual objects to the shot. So um, an airborne vaccine can be released into the air without the consent or even the knowledge of the public. Uh, Dr. Joseph Mercola, as uh, you might expect, is not a fan of this. He uh, relayed his concerns, saying a disturbing picture emerges, and uh, some of this is pretty obvious. Um, he, he mentions that uh, there is significant history in the United States that Big Brother has already shown that he cannot be trusted with technologies like this. For example, uh, in the 1950s, and I had never heard about this, there was a U.S. Navy experiment where they sprayed something called Serachia um, narcosins, narcosins, bacteria, into the air near San Francisco over a period of six days. It was called Operation Sea Spray. The intent was, allegedly at least, to determine how susceptible the city was to a bioweapon attack. And the good thing here was that this Serachia uh, narcosins Marcesisins turns whatever it touches bright red, so they could track it easily. It's kind of like getting people to wear a mask. You can track how good your your propaganda is. In this case, they just went around looking for bright red folks. So um, they uh, they saw it spread throughout the city as residents inhaled the microbes from the air. And initially, the U.S. military claimed, at least, that they thought the um, Serachia uh, nar- marcesisins wouldn't harm humans, but an outbreak occurred anyway. Some developed urinary tract infections, and at least one person died. And uh, some have suggested that the uh, release forever changed the area's microbial ecology. This wasn't an isolated incident, says Dr. McCullough, because the U.S. government carried out many other similar experiments across the U.S. over at least the next 20 years. So while it might be disturbing to think about giving them an aerial vaccination tech, it's not unprecedented. Now, here's the part that really, I'll admit it, folks, this really, um, it, pee me, it, it pisses me off. I'll just come right out and say it. Um, There is a scumbag at Western Michigan University, Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine, named Parker Crutchfield. And this reprobate um, is endorsing the use of compulsory covert bioenhancements. And he wrote in the journal Bioethics, what a misnomer, and discussed moral bioenhancements. Now, here's a scumbag, a reprobate, probably satanic, but I don't know that. Uh, I just know that his fruit looks pretty reprobate. And he's talking about moral bioenhancements, which means you know that they're not moral according to Scripture. He's playing God. Because God doesn't do this. He says, choose. This son of a bitch says, not in my book you don't. I'm going to force it on you. Because my morality is going to trump yours, and you're not even going to know about it. He refers to the use of biomedical means to trigger moral improvements. Quote, this is a quote from this article. It is necessary to to morally bioenhance the population in order to prevent ultimate harm. Moral bioenhancement is the potential practice of influencing a person's moral behavior by way of biological intervention on their moral attitudes, motivations, or dispositions. Notice they call it moral when what they're doing is satanic, folks. That shouldn't surprise anybody. 
Uh, what he's referring to here is the woke gene, it sounds like. Uh, they talk about potential in- interventions that, quote, include infusing water supplies with pharmaceuticals that enhance whatever it is they want to enhance, like your wokeness, or your altruism, or um, a person's emotions or motivations, and in an attempt to influence the person's moral behavior. And uh, some argue that moral bioenhancement should be compulsory for the greater good, but Crutchfield says, nope, that doesn't go far enough to suit him. He wants them to be covert. Quote, I take this argument one step further, arguing that if moral bioenhancement ought to be compulsory, well then, its administration ought to be covert rather than overt. This is to say that it is morally preferable for compulsory moral bioenhancement to be administered without the recipients knowing that they are receiving the <coughs> enhancement. I think it would be, well, no, you know, let's just put it this way, folks. I can't tell you what I think should happen to this guy. I, uh, I will trust in Yahuwah to protect us from him and to give him whatever it is that uh, his moral superiority in the judgment of a real true Elohim uh, is deserving of. How's that? All right. Uh, speaking of moral superiority, here's another one. This is a uh, this is just kind of a, a summary report. This published September 17th by a journal called the Correlation Research in the Public Interest, which quantified the vaccine dose fatality rate (VDFR) for all ages associated with the COVID not vaccine. This is the one that was injected with a needle as opposed to being uh, put surreptitiously into your food or air. COVID vaccines. Here's the headline. Linked to increased mortality, resulting in a minimum of 17 million additional deaths. And furthermore, they said this was the only beneficial effect. There were no lives saved. There is hard evidence um, of all-cause mortality, and there is equally hard evidence that there was no beneficial effect. And uh, they did this, by the way. These, these 17 million were just in the southern hemisphere. That doesn't include uh, people in, say, the U.K. and Europe and um, the once free United States. Okay, there, there's more here. Um, why am I mentioning these stories in this context? I, I've got stories here about the coming meltdown of the uh, um, of the fiat dollar. We know that that's how inevitably abominations before Yah end and so forth. Well, again, let's let's take it back and say here we are. What are we What are we looking for? What do we do? We're in the season of our joy. I think it's important to focus on that. And to ask the question, um, pray about it this this time as we're spending this time in the wilderness, knowing that what we have yet to go through, uh, it looks like there's some fairly nasty stuff out there, but we can trust in Him. It's important, I think, to practice the joyfulness part. Uh, I see some of the uh, the sages commenting on the Hebrew language and uh, the the conjugation of the verbs that have to do with simcha and sameach and be joyful and so forth. Is it a commandment or is it a promise? You know what? I can't help but think they make a good case. Arguably, it's both. We practice being joyful. It is a commandment to try, to be aware of the shadow pictures, to understand the things to come. And it's a promise that there will come a time when he will, in fact, fulfill that promise of what we have been practicing for. And we will be joyful. Be altogether, be wholly joyful. But in the meanwhile, I think the key is that we have to kind of understand it. Well, among other things, what we need to do is to be faithful from him from now until then. 
And there are so many admonitions in Scripture, uh, so many things as we were reading through the uh, the places in uh, Revelation and in uh, Zechariah of uh, promises and, and things yet to come. Uh, I've, I've said this before, you know, if you look at uh, Revelation itself, recognize the so-called trumpets uh, that are blown, uh, the shofar, in other words, and um, that the first one is um, certainly sounds to me like it's blown at the time of what? Yom Teruah, the day of uh, the blowing of the shofar, the day of shouting, the day of trumpets. Looks like that kicks it off. Looks like these other things then follow. Is it this year? Well, maybe, but um, probably not. I guess it's possible that uh, certain things could have been, and matter of fact, probably are in motion. We just haven't seen them yet. But as all of this plays out, uh, I think what the, the real key for each of us individually to understand is there are so many things that we've been warned about. Yeshua says, right, recognize the fruit. If we're, if we're to be this good fruit of this goodly tree, then it's, uh, it's helpful that we should learn to recognize one another because we're going to have to buck one another up. We're going to have to support one another through the times that are yet to come. We have a long ways to go. We know that there are going to be a lot of people that are making it. On the other hand, we remember the warning too. Yeshua says that the path is narrow. Few there be that find it. He talks about the wedding feast, right? There'll be gnashing of teeth because there's a whole lot of people that want to come in, but they simply weren't ready, aren't ready, don't intend to be ready. They have rejected knowledge, so I'll reject you from being priests for me, he says. You can read and study the scriptures. You can look at these prophetic enhancements, these prophetic uh, descriptions, these prophetic understandings of, of things to come. Um, and, and this is the good news and the bad news. As you know, I, as a nerdy engineer, I like to talk about cycles. And, and I quote Mark Twain frequently, referring to history, but it, it fits with prophecy too. Uh, you know, history repeats, um, and, but it doesn't repeat exactly, but it does seem to rhyme, is essentially paraphrasing what he said. Uh, prophecy is likewise. Now, what does that mean? It means as we see things playing out and we look at elements of prophecy in Scripture, we see things, oh yeah, this happened, right? Uh, these uh, these exiles happened in the past. These kingdoms that rose and fell, these these cycles in history, things happened. There are economic cycles. Any economist uh, worth his salt can see there are economic cycles, lots and lots of cycles. Elliot Wave Theory and other things, um, all essentially talking about the grand super cycles and the smaller cycles and stock market cycles. Well, the problem with cycles and stuff is that, yeah, not only do you get rhymes, you get a literal symphony of human history. And it's pretty easy, as you're going through it, to almost get overwhelmed by the uh, you know the crescendo and the uh, the uh, the elements of the brass and the woodwinds and all the various instruments coming up and rising and falling and and you kind of sometimes get overwhelmed and you, and you lose the bigger picture. I think that's one of the main functions of his appointed times. His feast is to give us some kind of a grounding and to be able to step back and understand. And you notice too, and I mentioned this with the birth of John the Baptist last night and, and uh, Yeshua, that there's this six-month separation between Pesach, that feast, and uh, things that happened associated with that one, if you will, on one half cycle of the year and of the human history cycle, and then this thing that happens at the time of the fall feast, Sukkot, the other half cycle. So we see similarities and we see differences. But um, the, the going through, the working through, the, uh, the going through the motions, 
and playing out and seeing what is it I'm supposed to learn during this half cycle at Pesach, Passover, for example. What are the what are the pieces of that picture? How about this one? What am I supposed to learn by dwelling in booze and recognizing that there comes this time that we've already seen that may repeat again of a great regathering yet to come. He will tabernacle among us. How do all of these pieces fit together and tell me, help me understand uh, what I need to do? And then furthermore, right, when I look at all these day-to-day threats, they really want to kill us. Let's not kid ourselves. They want to kill us. And what does Scripture tell us? Nothing new. Solomon said it. Ain't nothing new under the sun. What has been is what shall be done. What was done in Genesis 3? He lied. He wanted to kill. And what does Yeshua say? The adversary, Hasatan, the bad guy, Nechash, different names in different places, but same entity, same adversarial attitude of hatred for humanity, his perfect DNA. He's he literally created in the image of yod heh vav He himself. He hates all of that. He wants to destroy that. He comes, but to what? To steal, to kill, and destroy. We're still seeing that. mRNA to be injected straight into your lungs. No jab needed with aerial vaccinations. Folks, they have not given up their desire to kill to steal souls, to destroy, to cut the genitalia off children, you name it. If it's more evil than you can probably wrap your head around, they got it being funded somewhere with Fauci or DARPA or some other satanic lab trying to say, hey, let's do it to people, let's do it against their will, and let's tell them it's because we're morally superior to you. I have no doubt that that's what the Aztecs thought while they were clutching the hearts out of living, breathing people right there on the altar before a fake god. We're morally superior to you. We're going to throw your heart in the pile over here and your body down the bottom of this pyramid. Wow. Ain't nothing new under the sun. So here we are. Again, on the one hand, uh, this is the nature, too, of a uh, of a choice, right? I've laid before you this day life and blessing, death and cursing. Choose life. We have a really stark choice. We stand at a really interesting conjunction, crux, apex uh, of history. Cusp is another term I like to use. But one of the things that you don't see with this Crutchfield SOB is what the creator of the universe gives us. A choice. He says, I have laid before you life and blessing, death and cursing. You have a choice. Choose life. What does Satan say? What does Crutchfield say? What does the Biden Fuhrer say? You have no choice. You will take the Zyklon B or else you will take the shower. You will get on the train. You will obey. You'll take the mark. You'll do what we say. If you're looking for a real simple way to tell whether or not somebody is serving the one true Elohim or a fake, ask, do I have a choice? If the answer is no, folks, you know who they serve. Their fruit makes it damnably clear. So for all of these reasons, yeah, I I laid out some stories, and you look at these things, and if we did not have this hope that's within us, if we did not know that he has come at this season to redeem us and to tabernacle among us, I could understand people being scared as hell. Because they've forgotten the one commandment is the most repeated in, in the entire book. Fear not. For I bring you great tiding, uh, good tidings of great joy. Sameach. We have a choice. Never forget that. We have a choice. And, and it's never been more clear than at this season, right? Why not get it right? Why not get the season right? Why not recognize the shadow pictures? Why not worship the right God and reject the fakes? Reject those that say, oh, see, it's just a little tree. It's just a... 
It's a fake, folks. We got fakes out the wazoo. People are being injected with fakes, using fake what they think is money that's not money. And the result? Well, the ends thereof are the ways of death. It's completely consistent. It's never been more clear. And it's never been more stark, I guess. And that's part of the good news. So as we sit here and we ponder this season of joy, I think, I guess what I'm really trying to say is it is wonderful to be joyful. And I, I often hear people say, oh, how can we be joyful if there's all this bad stuff happening? Well, that's the key. You've got to answer that question for yourself. We all have to answer it. How can I be joyful knowing that I have a choice of life and death? Answer it because I'm going to make the right choice. I will choose life. I can't choose for somebody else. There's going to be a whole lot of people. I know this. There are going to be a lot of people that are going to choose death. And in some cases, folks, in most cases, there may be a few cases in the case of people that are under our direct authority, like wives or, or children living in our home, that kind of thing, we have something to say about it. But in most cases, the neighbor down the block, the um, you know the, the satanic occupants of the white whorehouse, Nothing we say is going to make a difference. And they're going to try to kill as many people as they can. I'm not going to sweat it. They've made their choice. I can't change it. I'm not going to stay awake night worrying about it. The choices that I can affect are mine. As for me and my house, we will serve yod heh vav -Hey. Oh, yeah. And this one other one, too. For all of us, and I would suspect that includes most of us, that have been put on a position, in a position of being a watchman on the wall, being asked to give an account for the hope that is within us, being told that there are things that we can do and things that we can understand, well, then we are supposed to blow that shofar. We're supposed to be ready in season and out to give that witness. And that is vital that we know and do. So uh, there has never been a more important season, I don't think, for us to think about it and do it than, um, than this one. And, and we're being given the perfect opportunity as well. So that's part of the reason why I was playing various songs that were associated with the birth of the Mashiach, but just played at the wrong time of the year. Well, you know what? We can redeem, in fact, certain musical elements. We can redeem things that are at least somewhat redeemable and use that as yet another mechanism, yet another way to help wake people up and get them to understand. Because it is true, as we see some of this ugliness and this evil coming down, there are going to be people that are innocent and that are going to have this mRNA crap delivered straight into their lungs. They're going to be uh, finding it stuck in their food. They're going to be suffering as a result of um, you know, having been suckered into dishonest weights and measures, into taking the boosters. They've inherited lies and they don't know it. I cannot change their mind. I cannot choose for them. But I can speak his truth boldly as I ought to. I can show them by my fruit. We can show them by our fruit the way that they should walk, the things that we should do. And we can ask this question, not just associated with this season, but with everything else that we're going to talk about and pray about and teach about in this time to come. Why not get it right? Why not read why not understand? Why not search out the truth, search out the scriptures for ourselves, see if these things be true, be good and faithful servants? Why not get it right? We can. We have been blessed. We have tools and technology that will help us rightly divide his word of truth that we literally wouldn't have had 50 years ago. 
We need to use those things. Be thankful for those things. And during this season especially, okay, because most of us grew up in households where we didn't know any better. And we thought bunnies and eggs and, um, and little red guys in, in funny suits that had names that were uh, anagrams of Satan, that all this was somehow something associated with the birth of the Savior. Wrong. They were always fakes. It's just that now we have more reason to know than ever, and it's more important, and we can prove it. And we need to be able to do that. Let's pray. Yahuwah Eloheinu, Yahuwah Abba, we thank you. Father, we thank you for this season. We thank you that you have commanded us that we should observe, shamar, keep guard, understand, walk in obedience, your appointed times, uh, your moedim. We thank you that we can. We thank you that you came to tabernacle among us at such a time as this, in this season. We thank you that the things that you have shown us, that you have done, are also shadow pictures of things that are yet to come. And we pray that during this season you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to know and to understand the things that are of you. Let your Torah, your instruction, your prophetic words, your examples, let them be a lamp to our feet, that we would veer neither to the right nor to the left, but that we would walk that narrow path. We know that your word says, few there be that find it, but help us, Father, to be among those who walk in obedience to you and complete the race, the journey, and are in the place that you would have for us to be through all that lies ahead. Help us to speak your truth boldly. Help us to be witnesses to all of those that you would bring into contact with us, especially during this season, but in all this time to come. Father, we know that there is this huge deception at hand. We know that it is insidious. We know that it is satanic. We know that it is pervasive. That there is AI enhancement, that lots of things are being done with the intent that they would deceive us and lie to us and try to kill us without us even knowing it. And we know that there's no protection that we have other than that which is in you and your word. So we stand on your word, Father. You say that no weapon formed against us will prosper. Help us to be counted worthy to escape these things that are coming. Help us to walk in obedience that we might meet the requirements. All of the if clauses in your word. So that we can, in fact, walk in that way that is pleasing to you. And know, because we do know that your word is true. Help us to know that we are walking in the way that you would have us walk. Guide us in this time ahead. Help us to fear not, Father. Give us your comfort and your shalom. Bless all of those, we pray, that seek to be called by your name and do your work. Bring us together. We know there's a harvest coming. We know that we're going to be counted on to help, to be among those who work in that harvest. And we pray that you would bring us additional hands to help in the process. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are who you say you are, that you came and you did what you have done, that by your stripes we are healed, that by your blood shed for us we have been redeemed, that by your example we can walk into your kingdom, into the land, be partakers of your promises. We look forward to the wedding feast, Abba. Help us to be ready. We pray that among and above all of these things that we would be good and faithful servants unto you. 
And we ask this in your set-apart name, because you are our healer, Yahuwah Rapha. You are our Mashiach, Yahushua. You are our Redeemer, our King, our Husband, our help in times of trouble. You are our Savior. You are Yahuwah Zevuot, Yahuwah Vitzivenu, Yahuwah Zedeknu. Our banner, Yahuwah Nisi, and our all-sufficient El Shaddai. We thank you and praise you. Hallelujah. Amen. All right, so let's uh, let's conclude with the Aharonic blessing. We remember that Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak and turn to Aharon and his sons, and say to them, This is how you bless the Benai Yisrael. Say to them, Ivarekaka Yahuwah Varishmareka, Yair Yahuwah Panavaleka Vichunaka, May Yahuwah bless you and keep you. May Yahuwah make his face to shine upon you. May Yahuwah lift his countenance upon you and give you his shalom. Amen. And thus he said, They shall put Shemi, my name, on the Benai Israel, and I myself shall bless them.